Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, We arrive now at the third Sunday of Lent, and thus, the beginning of our third full week of spiritual testing during this 40-day journey through the desert. The first two weeks have impressed upon us that Lent is indeed a season of testing, understood as training. We saw this in Jesus' experience in the desert, which is itself an echo of the 40-year sojourn of the Israelite people through the desert, and which the Church calls us to a participatory imitation of during this Lenten season. We also saw this in the horrible scene of the Akedah last weekend, where Abraham was put to an unimaginable test and came out the other side as our father in faith. Over the course of the first two weeks, we have stressed how the season of Lent, with its emphasis on prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, provides us with a perfect opportunity to intentionally cultivate virtue in our lives. This insistence has been based on the understanding that the virtues are spiritual strengths, which help us to fight off vice and sin in our lives and grow in deeper communion with God. Last Sunday's focus on the Akedah provided us with an opportunity to discuss the theological virtue of faith in detail. Then, we talked about how faith is most basically trust, the meaning of the Greek word pistis, often translated as faith in scripture. But, in addition, Abraham's example in the Akedah demonstrated to us that the core of faith is sacrificial. Faith is trust, but trust is always relational, and thus entails the entrusting of oneself to another at its very core. Our readings for this Sunday provide us with an opportunity to further discuss the Christian life of virtue, and we will see that from a Christian perspective, all virtue flows from faith. Our gospel for this Sunday provides us with an often forgotten but important dimension of Jesus' character. Over the centuries, Christian art has been inclined to depict Jesus as a meek, placid, and inoffensive character, someone to whom one would not hesitate to draw close to for fear of being rebuffed. Think here of the images of the Good Shepherd, or of the Crucifixion. The former often depict Jesus as a warm figure holding a lamb, and the latter often depict him dying somberly on the cross. These images are important and have their own virtue to them. However, these images have given rise to a problematic understanding of who Jesus is, evidenced by the so-called moralistic therapeutic deism that functions as the de facto religion of many of the self-ascribed Christians of our own time and place. For these folks, as sociologist Christian Smith explains, God is understood to be a sort of cosmic butler, someone who orders and watches over human life and wants people to be good and nice to one another. Importantly, this God is not intrusive. He is not all that involved in one's life, except when you get into a jam. Then he is more than happy to clean up your mess and get things back into order. This is generally the view that people have come to have of Jesus today. He is a good teacher, a nice guy, loves everyone, and wants to be your friend. To be sure, one can note some similarities between this view of God and an authentic Christian view of God, which is why it's so difficult a problem to correct. 
God does watch over and order all things. And what's more, as we see Jesus doing in our gospel reading for today, he does have a desire to clean house when things become disordered. But Jesus Christ is not some nice guy who just wants to be our friend, tell us some good stories, and teach us some helpful life lessons. The episode of the cleansing of the temple reveals to us that our God is powerful and intrusive. If the images of the Good Shepherd and the crucifixion show us the lamb-like side of Jesus' character, the cleansing of the temple shows us that Jesus is indeed the conquering Lion of Judah, as we are told in chapter 5, verse 5 of the book of Revelation. As the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ is the ultimate sign that God does not want to be hands-off when it comes to our lives. Rather, he wants to invade and cleanse every part of it to bring order and healing to his good creation, which has become so distorted by sin. And the way Jesus does this, as we learn today, is by eliminating everything within us foreign to himself and once cleansed, filling us with his very life. The cleansing of the temple holds a very prominent place in the Gospel of John. In contrast to the Synoptic Gospels, which place the cleansing of the temple near the end of Jesus' ministry, taking place after the entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, John places this episode at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, appearing in chapter 2, just after the miracle of the wedding at Cana, and just before Jesus' encounters with Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. Scripture scholar Brendan Byron suggests that the reason for this relocation is due to John's emphasis on Jesus as the presence of God in the world. Indeed, John opens his gospel in the prologue by telling us that Jesus is the eternal divine word, and this word, through which all things has been created, has become incarnate in Jesus Christ. It is likewise in the first chapter of his gospel that John recounts St. John the Baptist's identification of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Importantly, in John's gospel, the cleansing of the temple takes place immediately after Jesus worked the first of his signs at Cana which John tells us, moved his disciples to begin believing in him. It is this three-part backdrop which forms the context of the cleansing of the temple. Jesus has been affirmed as the eternal word of God become incarnate, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and his disciples are beginning to believe in him. Importantly, John tells us, it was the time of Passover. During this most solemn time of the year for the Jewish people, Jesus enters the temple and finds business as usual being conducted. There are animals being sold to sacrifice, and others are there exchanging currency for people to be able to buy them to sacrifice. And Jesus is not pleased. John tells us, He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and oxen and spilled the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace, Jesus says to those who sold doves. This is different from the words given by the synoptics, all of which cite the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah in quoting Jesus as saying, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. For his part, John appears to be citing the end of the book of the prophet Zechariah. There, Zechariah foretells a day when all the nations of the earth will go to Jerusalem to worship the one God. And on that day, Zechariah says, No longer will there be merchants in the house of the Lord of hosts. In the synoptics, there is a clear charge of immoral behavior, theft. Not so in John's gospel. It is rather a matter of right worship, and importantly, the impending radical transformation of that worship. The people have made Jesus' father's house into a marketplace when it is meant to be a place of worship. Yet even that worship is now coming to an end 
with the incarnation of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus drives out the sacrificial animals because as the Son of God incarnate, he is the one definitive Lamb of God whose sacrifice will put an end to all sacrifices, transforming the manner and locus of the ancient worship of Israel from a temple-based sacrificial system into a manner of worship that knows no bounds, but rather catches up the whole of life into one continual sacrifice to the Heavenly Father, through, with, and in Him, the Incarnate Son. Thus John tells us that the disciples recalled Psalm 60 verse 10, which says, Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, an intense love for the Father, drives Jesus from within, forms the core of his whole life, such that in the end it literally consumes him as he offers himself out of love for the Father and his creation, so that the chasm created by sin might be eliminated and creation once again enjoy communion with its loving creator. Thus, when asked for a sign of his authority, Jesus responds, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up referring to the temple of his body. The resurrection of Christ begins the construction of the new and definitive temple of God, a house of God not limited by the walls of any building. Rather, as Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 of John's Gospel, animated by the worship of God in spirit and truth. Participation in which, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, is gained by being born from above of water and spirit. You see, this is one of the main reasons why Jesus was such a threat to the powers that be of his time and place. While his coming marked the consummation of God's relationship with his people, this consummation would demand significant change in the status quo, and this, those in power, could not abide. Yet it is this very rejection that the God who orders all things for the good of those who love him reestablishes the order which God intended from the beginning. For, while a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, as St. Paul teaches us in our second reading for today from his first letter to the Corinthians, the paschal mystery of Christ forms the wellspring of the Christian faith, from which flows a life of worship in spirit and truth. The worship of God in spirit and truth takes place through, with, and in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the worship of God established by the Paschal Mystery, while having official forms of worship revolving around sacraments tailored to the life of the human creature, enables human creatures who receive the grace of God to live a life that is worship, a life that flows from the sacrifice of faith and that is lived in unity with the power and wisdom of God, Jesus Christ. For the human creature, living a life of worship is nothing else than this, to live in unity with the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit for the praise and glory of God the Father. This leads us to a consideration of where the life of virtue fits into the Christian life theologically. As mentioned at the outset of our discussion last weekend, it is imperative that Christians never relegate the virtues to the realm of the merely moral or ethical. And our second reading for this weekend from 1 Corinthians helps us understand why. In verse 24 of chapter 1, St. Paul writes that, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Greek word translated as power in English is dynamin, which means force, often associated with miraculous power. In Latin, dynamin is translated as virtutum, meaning virtue. Church father St. Augustine of Hippo therefore consistently appealed to this verse throughout his career to define what virtue is. However, this is not only a Western phenomenon attributable to a translation issue, 
For example, Eastern theologian St. Gregory of Nyssa appeals to the very same verse in the Greek to define why a life of virtue leads to the perfection of the human creature in his work on perfection. However, in Greek, the word we translate as virtue is arete, not dinamen, the word St. Paul uses to describe Christ here. So, how could these two thinkers draw from the same verse in different languages and yet arrive at the understanding that it is in Christ that the Christian finds virtue? The answer relates to our discussion on the first Sunday of Lent. Then, we talked about how we are summoned into the desert for 40 days in participatory imitation of Christ. The same idea is at work here with respect to virtue. The theological metaphysics undergirding the thought of these early Christian thinkers is shaped by Platonic philosophy, which they used as a tool to interpret Scripture, as Saints Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa do here to interpret 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. Three ordinal points derived from Platonic philosophy will help us understand how they use that philosophy to interpret this verse. First, Platonic philosophy insists that a creature is perfected by participating in the life of the good or the one, which is the source of all existence. Second, participation in the life of the good is achieved or deepened by way of participatory imitation. Third, when it comes to the moral life, virtue displays participatory imitation of the life of the good. When baptized, this philosophy yields the results seen in the theology of Saints Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa. By God's grace, we deepen our participation in the life of the triune God, specifically by participatory imitation of the life of Christ, who as God is virtue and wisdom personified. This is why virtue is not and can never be a simple moral category for Christians, and likewise, why it is imperative that we as Christians strive to grow in virtue continually with the help of God's grace. Virtue denotes participation in the life of Christ and therefore God's ongoing work of salvation in us. Said technically, within a Christian theological paradigm, virtue is a soteriological category, and when spoken of plurally, the virtues describe the various ways we manifest the life of Christ, the power of God, in us, in concrete action. Okay, so how does virtue understood in this way, as participation in the life of Christ, relate to our gospel reading for this weekend? As various manifestations of Christ's life at work in us, the virtues are a measure of our participation in the life of Christ, if you will. And this from their beginning to their perfect consummation in the life of heaven. For, as the power or strength of God at work in us, the virtues will deepen and grow over time as we practice them, clearing out all that is contrary to the life of God until we are filled with divine strength or virtue and we become perfectly conformed to Christ. Thus, as manifestation of the life of Christ at work in us, the virtues not only denote our increasing perfection, their operation denotes our cleansing driving out all that is not Christ within us. This, we can say, is the tropological meaning, or the moral meaning of our gospel reading for today. As Christians, St. Paul teaches us in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, we are the living temples of God because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. By his indwelling, the Holy Spirit bestows upon us the theological virtue of faith and thereby unites us to the person of Christ. It is for this reason that it was said at the outset that the Christian life of virtue flows from faith. For Christ is the virtue of God, and we can only have this virtue by participating in his life, 
and it is the theological virtue of faith given to us by the grace of the Holy Spirit that commences this participation at our baptism. We might say then that faith is the mother of all virtues from a Christian perspective. But we can go one step further to see how this yields a radically different understanding of virtue from a merely moral or ethical understanding thereof. Last weekend, in our discussion of the Akedah, we saw how Abraham's faith exemplifies that a life of faith at its core is sacrificial in nature. Because the virtues spring from faith, the same holds for every virtue we speak of. As various manifestations of the life of Christ in us, the virtues give us the spiritual strength necessary to increasingly live lives of self-sacrificing love in imitation of Him. Therefore, the virtues enable us to truly become living temples of God. For, by conforming us to the self-sacrificing love of Christ, the virtues give us the divine strength to do precisely what St. Paul exhorts us to in chapter 12 of his letter to the Romans. Offer every action as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. My friends, this weekend we see why the cultivation of the virtues is at the very center of our 40-day Lenten training session in the desert. As he shows us today, the life of Christ burns with an intense zeal to cleanse the temple of God, which we are through baptism, when the Holy Spirit, the very love of God, comes to dwell in us. When we cooperate with this love, Christ increasingly is formed in us by cleansing us of all that is not Him and filling us with His divine life. We have seen how this all begins with the theological virtue of faith, which, as was exemplified by Abraham last weekend, has a sacrificial shape, entrusting the whole of oneself to God. The moral virtues which flow from this sacrificial core, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, give rise to a life that is increasingly lived as a gift of love to God and neighbor. By doing so, the virtues conform us to the life of Christ, and through, with, and in Him, to the life of the triune God, who from all eternity exists as a radically dynamic life of gift, the Father giving Himself completely to the Son, and the Son reciprocating that complete gift of self in the love that is the Holy Spirit. In the end, this is what Lent is all about, allowing God to cleanse us so that we might be prepared to enter the eternal exchange of triune love on Easter morning. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.